Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening to your head. This is somewhat disorganized. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. I'm Brad Listy. Hello from Los Angeles. Let me start really quickly here with another reminder about the Other People app, the official app of this program. It is now available. It is free of charge. You can get it for your iPod, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. You can get it in the App Store or the Android Marketplace. It's free. You download it to your phone, whatever you like. It's a great way and uh, probably the best way to listen to this program and keep up with all the details. New episodes are automatically downloaded to your device. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can download episodes to listen offline. You can access premium content and the deep archives. Uh, it's very user-friendly. It's comprehensive. It will make your life easier. So please go get the free Other People app. Uh, before we get rolling, I want to take a moment to mention some good news on a personal note. Uh, I have a new book coming out. I have co-authored with Justin Benton a book called Bored, B-O-A-R-D. It is due out from TNB Books in just a few days in mid-November. It is a work of literary collage. It is experimental in nature. And the entire contents of the book are derived from the comment boards 
at The Nervous Breakdown, which is my online literary community and blog that I founded back in 2006. So quickly, let me try to explain how this thing was constructed because it is a bit of an oddball. Uh, Justin Benton and I went through the first two years of The Nervous Breakdown's existence, 2006 through 2008. Uh, we went through every single post, every single comment board on the site comprehensively, and we extracted what we felt were the best and most interesting comments. And uh, I should add uh, that the comment boards at the Nervous Breakdown are pretty exceptional by comment board standards. They're pretty lively. They're pretty civil for the most part. Uh, they can obviously be bawdy and uncouth and so on, uh, but there's not a lot of mean-spiritedness. And because the site is literary in nature and because it has such a vibrant community of writers and readers, you get some pretty incredible stuff on these comment boards. So Justin and I extracted all of these comments. Uh, you know, we spent a couple of years doing this and we took the comments, we poured them all into a giant uh, Microsoft Word document. And then from there, we set about organizing them according to theme. And then uh, we arranged them meticulously in a collage-like manner so that the book reads like one long, strange, oddly moving, and often very funny conversation, if that makes any sense. So uh, the book, again, is called Bored. It will be available in mid-November wherever books are sold online. You can get it in print and ebook editions. So let me now take a quick moment to mention today's other sponsor, Litbreaker. Please go check out litbreaker.com, you guys. Litbreaker is an ad network for the arts, culture, and literary web. If you're a publisher or a brand or an individual author and you want to advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown or HTML Giant or Full Stop or The Rumpus or Large Hearted Boy, go to litbreaker.com. It's a very effective way to reach a huge audience of intelligent, artsy, bookish nerds okay hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a diy manual for the construction of stories it is the long-awaited craft book by steve almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Today's guest is Antoine Wilson. He is the author of two novels. The first is called The Interloper, and his follow-up effort, Panorama City, has just been published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt to tremendous critical acclaim. Uh, very pleased to have him here on the program. Let's get to it. This is my conversation with Antoine Wilson, the author of Panorama City. Yeah, the worst is when you, you, you don't quite have it and you lay it all down and then you edit it and then you keep editing it and then 
it's it's you're never going to get it from editing right so you end up with this very weird astringent thing and it has like no repeated words in it and it it reads okay, but it's empty. Yeah, it's like it's like it's, it's robbed of all of its vitality. Yeah, and it's dangerous because I think like you can do that. Or actually, I would ask you this: like you know, obviously, when you're writing fiction, you've got to get a ton of uh, time logged, and you've got to do the revision. You've mm-hmm. got to sit there with the text, and you've got to um, dig deeply into it in order to make sure that you can achieve the effect of having it feel like nobody actually wrote it, or right. however you want right. to put it. Yeah. But there's also a danger of making the text overwrought. And by fucking with it too much. <laughs> right. So how do you guard against that? And how do you sort of monitor your own energies to know when you're doing good work and when you might be noodling the thing to death? Well, uh, my process is um, is just the most painful process possible, which is, uh, you know, I'll start with a certain initial amount of energy on a project or an idea about something and make it, you know, a few attempts that usually it's like a couple of pages that I just hate. And, um, and then I keep going back until I get a couple of pages that I like. And then if I can get enough, uh, going, then I can usually get to a hundred pages, maybe somewhere between 80 and 130. 130 tends to be the wall. Um, and then, and then I have to start over and I do that. I mean, on this novel, I did it four times. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah. But the, um, did, you, did you did you take anything from yeah. one drop? You okay? So it yeah, wasn't yeah. a complete abandonment. No, no, okay. no. I mean, there were certain things from the very like the very first draft. There were things that were just straight up wrong, that were you know that were not um, things that ended up sticking. Um, there were sort of notions that I entertained about the characters that then ended up you know, on the cutting room floor. Um, but essentially, what I think that process does, besides make me miserable is it results in when I sit down to do that fourth draft, the stuff I'm putting out comes from that sense of energy. And I have an intuition for what it is that I'm writing. Right. Like I have built it up. I'm not somebody who does very much writing in my head before I get to the page. Um, sometimes I wish I was because it's painful to create something out of nothing. Like while you're, um, well, so uncertain about what it is, but then, so no outlining and stuff like that. Not really. Yeah. No, I mean, usually what happens is I'll get to a point where I have, you know, a a real solid fat draft and then I'll import it into something like Scrivener and break it up so that each paragraph basically has its own little space and then can have a descriptor and I can put flags on it to say if it needs to be rewritten or moved or stuff like that. So by the way, I should interject here and say that you introduced me to Scrivener, which oh, I is did? like totally changed my situation. I love it. It's great. Yeah. It's an awesome software program for writers. So if, if you're out there, there's a free plug for Scrivener. Yeah. And it's not expensive. No, it's like 40 um, bucks. Yeah. And it's, um, so there's no outlining beforehand, but in a sense, when I, once I've really got a lot of material, there's a lot of organizational stuff that goes on then. Um, through Scrivener, if you know what I mean. Like Like, structurally, voice, mm -hmm. all of it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, and and the the thing is, the voice thing is what comes from doing four drafts of the first hundred pages. And then I feel like the more I work on something, the more it becomes like a little lobe in my brain, you know, and it's something I can reach and access, and it's the voice of the novel, it's the world of the novel, and everything sort of is at my fingertips. Um, and I like to write in that state, but I don't like to, I can't, I can't seem to put things in there 
consciously into that box, like researching or whatever. It has to come from those first drafts. And then, then I can be in that state more intuitively. And then when the novel's done, it's like, I'm, it's like coming out of a period of temporary insanity. You know, I sort of feel like some of my emails coming out in the voice of the novel, you know, and then, it's like an actor who stays in character after the, the right, shoot is done. Right, an actor can't get out of character. <laughs> right. I think that's, yeah, it's just a fine line between uh, suspension of disbelief and um, psychosis, I guess, right? Well, yeah, and like, I, you know, like, how do you feel about the uh, autobiographical uh, aspects of any novel? Um, meaning, how do you, do you ever find yourself assessing yourself in your own fiction? I find that part of it so uh, sort of mysterious and interesting. And I think a lot of it is obvious. You know, you can look at a book and say, oh, this is what I'm dealing with here. This is what I'm working through in this particular situation. But then some of it, you know, I think passes into the realm of just pure invention and maybe takes off in directions that you didn't expect. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, can you look, can you look at your work in the rearview mirror? Like, look at your two novels and say to yourself, okay, this was what this one was essentially for me personally. And then this one is this, you know, can you sum it up? Yeah, I mean, with... My first book, The Interloper, was, um, you know, the whole book kind of emerged out of two things. One was the what if of what if um, someone close to you was murdered and you and the guy who did it was caught. And how, how do you extract a sense of justice from that person who's showing no remorse for killing someone close to you? And the other one was what it's, what it's like to sort of be newly married. And both came from my life. My When I was a, a kid, my older half-brother was murdered. And the guy who did it um, was just set to be paroled right around the same time that I went to grad school in Iowa. And I was driving on the same road where my brother had been um, murdered. And I thought, well, you know, what would happen if I was, you know, pulled up at some whatever, Radisson or Motel 6 or something for the night on my drive and went to the hotel bar and there there was the guy. You know, it just got me thinking about how do you deal with that sort of um, that sort of thing? And, and that sort of the, the, the very kooky, cockamamie, logical but uh, unwise notion came to mind that, that, you know, this character could write letters to the murderer as a woman, try to make him fall in love with this woman, find a vulnerability and then break his heart. Um, I recognize that that's uh, an unhinged thing to do. And the narrator came out as a sort of un unhinged guy, which was um, how that novel came about. But then he's also newly married. And and for me, I was newly married and having a sense that I was stepping into a, a sort of more of a normal life than I'd been living before. So, um, you know, I was very much aware of the autobiographical elements, but they came in sort of like... Um, I like to think of it like lemon zest, you know, the lemon is my life and I just zest a little off and then uh, things take off from there. So I have no trouble using pieces of bits and pieces of life and the things around me to go into novels. But they I feel the total freedom of, of fiction. Uh, I not too long ago tried to write some nonfiction about my dad and about our family and some various things. And I found it almost impossible because I. Um, well, actually, I, I started with nonfiction, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do a sort of romantic uh, clay with my family, and um, and that I, I realized I couldn't make fictional characters out of real people if they were identifiable. Yet, like it just sort of stopped me. So um, I can just take a little bit of 
real life and it, and it gives me like a launching pad. Yeah. And then with Panorama City, um, you know, Oppen Porter is, is dictating into cassette tapes, um, sort of what he knows about the world for the benefit of his unborn son. At the beginning of the book, his father has just died. He buries his father in their backyard, which is what results in him having to go live with his aunt. Um, and over the four years of writing this book, my son was born and my father died. So I, I was very conscious um, of being a sort of link in a human chain and, and that I would very consciously positioned Oppen in that same place. Um, but initially when I first started writing the book, I had no idea he'd be dictating it to his, his son that, you know, that notion only came at, at like a year in or something like that. At which point, where were you in the pregnancy? Were you done with it or was it? Oh yeah. He was, he was born in, I guess the first sketches for the novel were late 2006 and he was born in the middle of 2007. So, okay. Yeah. That's a big moment. It's pretty huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, it's I still haven't recovered, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I ever will, but it's really fun. It's amazing. Has it changed anything about how you work? Like, does it given you a better sense of urgency? Has it given you, I mean, obviously there's perspective that was uh, implemented into this book, you know, I mean, it, it inevitably, but is there any, I mean, is it too precious to start talking in that vein? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I make slightly better use of my time. I mean, that's a major change for me. Yeah. Uh, Forces you to be efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, you've got X amount of time where, you know, you've got childcare and you can go into your office for two hours or whatever. Mm. Um, I'm much less likely to just blow it off. And I find I don't read as much. Um, I'm yeah. tired at the end of the night. Me too. Yeah. Um, and I used to call that reading like a civilian three pages, fall asleep. Right. And I actually got, that'd be a great book to write. It would be a book that's specifically written in like little three page chapters. It should, there should be more of those. I mean, you know, I think there are, yeah. I think most books are, you know, that's, that's what I need. I mean, I feel like I'm like, if I'm left untended, I essentially just like doze off. You know? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm not engaged in some sort of, it. yeah, some sort of work activity or, I mean, as soon as I'm like uh, horizontal, I'm done. You know? Yeah. Well, and now, so my son's headed into pre-K this year, which is slightly different hours. I'm going to have a little more time. And then he'll be starting real school. And I think I'm going to have suddenly too much time again. Or not exactly, but... Just have another kid. There you it's go. It's going to be <laughs> strange. Well, I've been feeling this um, this tug, and I was like trying to figure out what it was. And it's like, yeah, my son's five, and he doesn't necessarily want me to see, like, to experience everything he experiences, you know? I've been sort of... Uh, co-piloting you know with him and curious about what he's you know what he's learning and just looking at things um through his eyes and trying to protect him and all this sort of stuff and now he's just entering the phase where he's gonna be doing and seeing a lot of stuff that i have no idea about and um you know he refuses to report how school was at the end of the day and all that kind of stuff and it's that it's the first little terror right 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 oh man yeah my mind just started like pre-preschool or whatever you call it nowadays, yeah. but you know, it's already just those little itty bitty steps you feel and you start yeah. to, you start to project and you're like, okay, so then 
they're going to turn 18 and just go away. And basically yeah. it's like, you, you know, I think maybe or it was even in, tw- like 12, they're going to turn 12 and they're going to just suddenly want to individuate way more. And yeah, it's essentially like a long process of being fired from like your most important totally. job. <laughs> I've just been downsized. Yeah. The first. Yeah. It's inevitable. Yeah. Um, so just to, to dial it back a little bit, because I know my listeners will be wondering this and I don't want to get into like too delicate a territory for too long, but mm. You mentioned that your uh, was it your half brother? Yeah, was murdered. Yeah, uh, can you just t- like tell us what happened? Yeah, um, he was uh, 19 years old. It was, it was uh, he was the middle uh, of three boys from my dad's first marriage, and he was driving across the country from Ottawa to Central California, where we were living at the time, Madeira, a very different Madeira than today's Madeira. Um, where is that? That's Central Coast, you said? Central California? No, no, it's oh, like, near okay. Fresno. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so he was driving across the country. He was going to stop in Colorado for some, uh, school testing thing that he was doing. And he had a VW bus and it broke down and some guys who were kind of drifters helped him fix it in exchange for a ride. He gave them a ride. Um, then they stole it from him, uh, sort of tied him up and like left him on the side of the road. And then they, uh, decided that they didn't want um, him to be able to identify them. So they went back and they killed him. Oh God. Yeah. Um, and he, he was missing for a while. Um, and the FBI didn't care to investigate cause they thought, Oh, this is just a, you know, teen runaway thing. Um, so my dad and his ex-wife hired a private detective and, um, they ended up, you know, finding his body and they found the guys who did it, but they couldn't, uh, quite nail them in the way they should have been nailed for various justice system failure reasons. So, yeah. So where does that leave you with respect to the, uh, process of jurisprudence? Is that the right phrase? Yeah. I mean, it's got to leave you feel, I mean, how do you grapple with that? Like with the failure of justice? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, frankly, I was trying to grapple with it in that first book and I, I honestly don't think about it that much. Uh, I just think, um, I mean, it's probably, it's undermined my, any faith that I might've had in the justice system, um, working like one might think it would. Uh, there was a very, uh, interesting documentary made about uh, my brother's, uh, story called just another missing kid. And it, um, was made for something called the fifth estate, which was like the 60 minutes of Canada. And it won the, uh, Academy award for feature documentary in, 1982 or 83. So, um, that's online somewhere, but you can, you can really see how the, you know, the, the, the deal making DA and the not enough money and the, you know, um, lackadaisical law enforcement, you know, it all, all sort of came together. Yeah. So what, so what about these guys? I mean, are they just out free now? Um, one of them, the the accomplice, the tagalong guy. I don't know what his story is. I presume he's out. But the guy who was the main guy died in. Um, he got out. He got paroled and immediately like stabbed his girlfriend and like he's just a. He was a psycho, um, drifter, um, uh, angry person, and um, he died in some rehab situation. Uh, okay. In, in maybe 2000 or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about more about, uh, where you're from 
you know, like you have an interesting, mm. I mean, I've read like the bio online and I, yeah. I saw like Montreal, Saudi Arabia, yeah. California. Yeah. Like, so start at the beginning, like a little bit about your family and like, you know, do you come from creative people or are you kind of an anomaly in your clan or what's the deal? I don't know. I mean, my, my dad, uh, was an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and, uh, my mom was a, uh, housewife most of the time we grew up and then she became a flight attendant for continental airlines about 10 years ago. So, um, she was my dad's second wife. She's uh, French Canadian and my dad's Anglo Canadian. So they, she was sort of the, you know, the young, hot second wife situation. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I was the first of the, the, the boys from the second clan. So my dad had three boys, uh, with his first wife and then three boys with his second wife. Um, we won't discuss other mixed boys. <laughs> others. Um, anyhow, uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if there. Uh, one of my other older half brothers is a is a writer as well. Um, but yeah, no, we didn't particularly come from sort of you know. So that's interesting. Though. My dad read a lot. He had you know he always had a big pile of New Yorkers next to the bed and books everywhere and definitely valued. Uh, knowledge and he kind of an encyclopedic no- knowledge of everything and a sense of adventure. There's a bright guy, super bright. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, but I mean, just you have a, you have an older half brother mm-hmm. who's also a writer. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Like it's somewhere in there. It's, it's and, somewhere. And then apparently, our grandfather on my dad's side was a real storyteller. Okay. Uh, I didn't really get to know him. I, I you know, I, I think there's always a genetic component somewhere, mm-hmm. and obviously, it's a, there's also a nurture element too. Like, w- were there educational experiences uh, or people in your life when that you can look back to or a moment even because I mm. think sometimes writers uh, or oftentimes I'll be talking to writers in this show and they'll be able to point to like a teacher who told them they were good at writing like something mm. as simple as that can stick with somebody for years and years and you really don't even uh, necessarily realize how powerful or formative that might be like was there something like that for you when you were a kid were, were people telling you and encouraging you it's hard to know I mean it, there's not something that, that I can look back to except sort of somewhat artificially and say, oh, well, there was this and there was that uh, early on. Uh, I, li- I like to read a lot. I read it, everything I could get my hands on. And I and I liked the idea of books. I mean, I remember being very little and thinking I was going to write a book uh, of all the different words you could make with a ty- uh, with a calculator if you turned it upside down. <laughs> I was like, I was like, that's, a, that's such a childlike idea. Yeah, and back yeah. then I was I was really dreaming more about uh, having book like having written books. I remember uh, making the word boobs on yeah, the calculator. Or boobless. Yeah, boobless. Yeah, boobless. Yeah, that's right. There was a, an equation you could type in, and you know this and this, and where would it leave Dolly Parton? Right, right, right. Boobless, right. Right. boobless <laughs> shell oil. I was, you know, and yeah. I was in the Midwest, so that that joke traveled the world. You know, it did. It was like yeah. a phenomenon. Yeah, we had well, we had it in uh, in Canada as well. So, um, yeah, we, we were in Canada until I was six and a half, and then we moved to. California to Central California, Madeira, which is near Fresno. So, what brought you from uh, Canada to California? Um, my my dad was um, fleeing socialized medicine. Maybe I don't, I'm not quite sure exactly what it was. He he had been president of the Quebec Orthopedic Association and stuff, and I think he just wanted a different an, a, a different adventure. Uh, and there was a job opening, so we were you know immigrants and. Uh, I don't know what that visa class is where you come in and you're skilled immigrants and you can get green cards. So um, we lived in Madeira for four years where they had soccer and uh, swimming pools and not much else. 
And then, um, then we came to Santa Monica for a year, and then uh, he didn't like who he was working with, so we went to Saudi Arabia for a year because that's what you do. <laughs> I was going to say. And you don't like who you're the working The obvious with. next step. Yeah, and the plan there was to stay in Saudi for five years, but he got hepatitis B from a patient. Um, he had cut himself during surgery, so he almost died in Saudi. We left at the end of one year stopped in England for a while while he recovered. And then my mom said, you know, screw this. We're going back to Santa Monica. That's, that's paradise. So wait a minute. Now, what about, uh, how old were you in Saudi? Seventh grade. Oh, okay. So this yeah. was like, four, this was like, you, you can remember being there. Oh yeah. What was life like there? Uh, it was, it was really interesting. Um, we lived in Al Kobar, uh, which is near, uh, Dahran, the military base. It's on the, on the east in the eastern province um, on the Gulf. And uh, we lived right in town in a building. We didn't live in a compound. So it was really neat, you know, to get to go uh, just walk around the streets of Al Kobar and be a kid in Saudi Arabia. And we had neighbors. Um, our next-door neighbors were from the Sudan, I think. And um, some American friends, some British friends. You know, it was a, it was a university building. Okay. And then uh, we'd hop on this school bus with this completely insane driver, and he would take us to the international school, which was on the on the grounds of the, the U.S. compound, uh, U.S. embassy compound, which was right at the end of the Air Force runway. So these F-15s would just come, like, right over the school and hit the afterburners and just you know, <laughs> shake the school, which was, just, you know, as a seventh grader, it was pretty awesome. Wow. Yeah. Um so, you know, it was, I, I don't know, it was great. It was a lot of exposure to a lot of different people from different places. And, um, you know, when you're that age, you, you, you accept what the, the culture is around you um, while also being sort of old enough and mature enough to recognize that it's very different from your own. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to sort of rail against um, the way that women dressed. But I was very much aware that, you know, the, the gossip and the stories about, oh, did you hear, you know, that there's always the gossip about the woman who insisted on wearing, you know, the Sergio Valente jeans, and then she got brought in by the religious police, you know, there's yeah. all the, or the people, you know, like <laughs> all the alcohol gossip and stuff. You know, seventh grade, you're old enough to maybe recognize the data there without knowing the full depth and significance of it. Right. So I mean, it was, it, it was a big adventure. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. And, yeah. and it was, uh, is there any sense, was there any sense of menace or I don't know. I mean, the culture seems, uh, you know, based on what little I know, like there, there's that restrictiveness and like the kind of like ingrained misogyny of having these women have right. to cover up and all this stuff. Like, did, does it, did you, did you sense any of that as a kid uh, aside from, I guess, these stories? I mean, or was no. it? No. Um, uh, not really. The, the main sense of menace I would get is just walking past a bank because the board bank guards would have these, they had machine guns. Mm. I don't know why it wasn't a sort of high crime country, but they always had bank guards with machine guns and they would just be bored. And so they would just, as you walked by, they just track you with the machine gun. So if you're a kid, because that's what you do when you're bored. Yeah, if you're a kid, right, exactly. And if, so if you're a kid, you're just like looking down the barrel of a machine gun as you walk past the bank. I mean, I remember that sense sense of menace, uh, you know. But uh, yeah, again, I was sort of young enough that I accepted a lot of it at face value. 
Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, it, I think it just sort of created a, a sense in me of, um, of acceptance of different, of different cultures and different ways of sort of organizing things socially. Um, now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important to remember. That's the thing. That's the great thing about travel is that it always reminds you that there are so many different ways to live. You know, right. some are better than others, right. I, you know, but I mean, it's just helpful to remember that. I think it can be easy, even if you've done a lot of traveling, but you haven't gone away in a while and you sort of get into your little routine, wherever you happen to be, you can start to think like the, you know, the way that people live is the way that people live in Los Angeles. Cause right. that's where we are right now. That's dangerous. And yeah, and exactly. Yeah. And yeah. but it happens easily. And then you go, I, I can go away to the Midwest for a weekend or I can go right. visit family in the South or whatever. And it's always refreshing uh, to sort of get away and get a little bit of perspective and see that there's different ways to skin the cat. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And as a grown up, I mean, uh, Saudi, Saudi's a bit of a trip because of the sort of Wahhabi element, the, the, the religious police, um, and, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, I think is a real, I don't know. It's just a bummer, you know, when people are religiously fundamental anywhere, um, and in and close to power. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, yeah. You can that's a bad go ahead mix. And do it off on some ranch somewhere <laughs> if you don't collect enough uh, too many weapons. Um, but I, in 2001, I went to Oman um, and I went to Muscat and spent some time in the Wahiba Sands. And I was re- I was researching a novel uh, that's in a drawer now. <laughs> but uh, it was great to go back to the Middle East um, alone as an adult. And take a look around. And Oman is is uh, pretty cool, actually, because it's, um, I guess, religiously more liberal, but in a lot of ways uh, remains very traditional. Um, anybody who gets money from the government, like working, has to dress traditionally, so that keeps the sort of traditional look to the country. And, and they've been trading with the with Africa and with the Chinese forever. So especially in Muscat, they're not. They're not as worried as, um, for instance, the Saudis were that outside influence would corrupt them. They've been dealing with outside inf- influence for, you know, whatever, a thousand years or something. Um, and it was just that was a, a really, um, I don't know, really fun trip and a good experience to go back there. Immediately after, let's see, on that that trip, I'd gone from like Madison to Ottawa or something to New York to straight over to Oman. And then I came back through. New York. And after it was about two weeks, everybody for the most part in Oman is either Omani or there are guest workers from Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, and then, you know, a few uh, oil company workers, stuff like that. So it's pretty homogenized, you know, and it's culturally homogenized um, for the most part. And then, so then to go from that to just be standing on the street in Manhattan and watch like you know, the last 11 people who walked by come from all different corners of the world and believe all different things. Right. See the world from all different perspectives was um, serious culture shock. I, I had never experienced as much culture shock as I did coming back from Oman and doing, two, you know, after two, two weeks coming back to hanging out in Manhattan. Yeah, I can see that. Like yeah. the reintegration and especially in a place like New York City. Right. You know, like I remember one of the most jarring experiences I ever had was when I came off of the Appalachian Trail after three months and went to Manhattan almost straight away. Yeah. 
And so it was like from being like in this tent, you know, getting like attacked by bugs and being around nobody to suddenly being around everybody. And right. That'll shake you up. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Big time. Um, so, okay. So you come back from, uh, you know, being abroad, you were in London for how long on the way home? Was that just sort of like a pit stop? Yeah, it was a few months and we, we actually stayed outside, uh, we stayed in the Cots, the Cotswolds. What your dad was just like convalescing. He was in London at the, yeah, he was at the King's College Hospital. Like he was getting real treatment for the hepatitis. For, for the hepatitis, yeah. Okay, and so then you come back to Santa Monica, and that's where you spent your adole- like the rest of your adolescence. Yeah, that from eighth grade onward. So how was that? Was it good to grow up there and go to school and high school there? Well, you know, moving around like that um, messes you up because you you keep getting dropped into different social environments and totally ill-equipped for, you know, what, what's going to be around you. And you don't really sort of figure it out till the first day of school kind of thing, you know? Um, so it was a little bit of an adjustment, even though we'd been in Santa Monica, uh, before for sixth grade, it was an adjustment coming in at eighth grade. And, and, um, and maybe from having moved, moved around so much, I felt like I had a fluid sense of identity uh that i could just wear whatever clothes i felt like wearing on a, any given day you know and one day i could dress like um you know jeff spicoli and another day i could dress like ducky you know or whatever <laughs> <laughs> um so that's uh i caught a lot of shit for that um because that's exactly when everybody i think is is really figuring out what their roles are and, and they're not supposed to be that fluid um so that was, you know, a little bit of adjustment. Um, it was, you know, it was okay. And then um, coming into high school, I mean, really the thing that, that did it for me in high school was uh, high school theater. So halfway through 10th grade, I sort of... What high school were you at? Were you at Santa, Santa Monica? Monica High School, like yeah. fam- like the, I feel like lots of actors and actresses spring from that school, right? Yeah, that's possible. Um, did you have anybody in your classes? That has gone on since to great fame and fortune. Um, I wonder if there's anybody in my. See, now I'll get in trouble if I forget somebody. <laughs> right. I'm sure that yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Several. I actually can't tell you their names because they're so famous. <laughs> um, I don't know. Carson Daly was in a class younger than me, maybe. Okay, there you go. Radio DJ yeah, personality. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. I you know it's just uh, proximity to entertainment industry you're always going to have people uh who go on to work in in that industry but uh but yeah so the high school theater thing was really really useful for me in the sense that it was the first thing that i'd done that i'd worked really really hard on that i felt was intrinsically worth working hard on um and was in the end ephemeral uh so that was really my first experience what were you doing were you performing uh, yeah, I'm a terrible actor. So I was trying to perform. I didn't know I was a terrible actor yet. Uh, I was performing, uh, writing, and then I did a lot of technical work, you know, um, lights and sets and sound, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, writing one acts and directing them and stuff like that. Yeah. So and then w- the, it, w- it was the finished product. It was the satisfaction of standing there. Uh, in the wings or, you know, behind the crowd or whatever it was yeah. and watching the thing unfold and and having that sense of like, okay, I've made something that is worth something and this is it and that there's evidence yeah. of it in the world now. It was yeah. that. Big time. Okay. And and I liked 
uh, doing it with friends. It was a great thing to be able to do it with friends. Although, well, how do you, well, yeah, how so do you count? Yeah, how do you countenance that against the solitude? You know, the solitude that you work in now as an author. You know what I'm saying? Because there is that's something that I wonder about. You know, as much of a headache as filmmaking is, you yeah. know, for example, or making a television show. Uh, I wonder how much I would enjoy the collaborative process sometimes. Like, the, the, trust me, there. Most of the time, I'm like, I'm so glad to not have to work with anybody. I get to just do my my writing, and I like the solitary nature of it. But sometimes I wonder if having that other human energy and the tension of working with other people might add something that uh, can't be replicated otherwise, or that I would really enjoy. Like, do you ever think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, it definitely adds something, but. Um but it doesn't really work for the medium of novels, I think. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it was it, that came more out of – I went to UCLA after high school, uh, majored in theater, um, smoked bags of pot, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, ate whatever I could get my hands on um, to try new things. And um, – and it, but you know, aside from that youthful experimentation, was it was it a law? I mean, because this was how it was for me. And tell me if this was similar for you. Like, do you look back on your undergraduate life and say to yourself, "God, I was fucking around so much. Like, I wish I would have taken it a bit more seriously sometimes." Or do you look back on it and say, "I'm so glad I was self aware enough to know that this was the only time I was ever going to have to be that big of a fuck up and that I took advantage of it." I'm somewhere I, in the yeah, middle. I would say neither because I I don't feel like I was totally aware that this that period would come to an end when i was a pothead. <laughs> just, i just i honestly thought everything would just take care of itself right um and uh and and but i also didn't necessarily feel like um yeah i didn't i didn't i didn't feel like this was my wasted time because what ended up happening was i was a theater major i was very you know, uh, sort of young and innocent and coming out of a great high school theater experience and the theater department at UCLA, which is great, was not the same as high school theater. Of course, it's never going to be. But um, it also suddenly sort of brought like, oh, there are people who are going to make careers of this and they're careerist, you know, or there's certain exclusionary things going on here that I that I didn't like. There were a lot of great people, but it, it turned out to not be for me, essentially. Uh and so I switched over to English. I um, thought I might go to medical school, so I, w I, I also was pre-med. So you had math science brain too? Yeah. And, um, and I really liked uh, the pre-med stuff. I, I just really couldn't decide. And I, was a, I worked on the ambulance at UCLA. I was an EMT, did stuff like that to see if I'd be, you know. Did you see some happy. gnarly stuff? No, um, you know, whatever. Like not, broken arms and stuff, but nothing like super messy. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, like an opened up leg kind of. Yeah. And then some death, but uh, that was mainly in the hospital context when we worked in the hospital. Uh, anyhow, so yeah, the, the, then I, I cut out the youthful drug experimentation fairly early. Uh, and then the burden of being pre-med, it was just a, like a heavy workload. Uh, what did I do? I was the parade director of the homecoming parade for no reason. Uh, and I was in, I was on the crew team for a year. I don't know what I was. Those where, are, where do you do crew in Los Angeles? At, in Bayona Creek down in the Marina. Oh, okay. Yeah. I so those are the things I feel like they were interesting experiences, but I, uh, that's, I feel like where maybe I was, I don't know, maybe I was just still seeking 
my way. And I got all the way through pre-med. I took the MCAT. I did all that stuff. And I was like, okay, now the carrot on the stick, I'm holding the carrot more or less. It's time to apply to med school. Do I really want it? And my, you know, my dad was a doctor. They, they, he thought I should be a doctor. And the answer was no. I really wanted to be a writer, which is something I could have told you in 10th grade. It's something I wrote down in 7th grade. But for some reason, college like spun my head all around backward. Um, and I what was to, the pivotal moment, or how did you arrive at the decision? Is there something concrete? Um, maybe sustained exposure to a bunch of contemporary literature in English class, sort of advanced seminars, you know, that were kind of like American novels. Uh, Paul Auster's New York Trilogy was a big book for me, although I'm afraid to go back because some of his other work I don't, I haven't been so hot on. And I'm, I'm worried that if I go back and look at New York trilogy, I'll go, oh, that's <laughs> but that happens to me. That happens yeah. to me all the time. It's like when you read a book in your life matters so much. Right. And right. like, I can find myself picking up a book and feeling like, what is this? Yeah. And then like five years later, picking it up and being like, oh my God, this is magnificent. Right. And vice versa. You know, it's all such a weird fickle thing. That's true. Um, so yeah, Paul Oster, uh, Thomas Pynchon, it was uh, crying of lot 49. And, um, James Baldwin's book, Another Country. Those were big books for me at the time that made me think, oh, you know what? I want to do to other people's heads what these books have just done to my head and sort of came out as a writer. Had to tell my parents I wasn't going to go to medical school. How did that go? Uh, they weren't too happy. Um, but, you know, what could they do? <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, although my mom, I was going to say, maybe like last year, was the last time she said it's not too late to go to medical school. <laughs> so it's still there. Yeah. And my younger brother actually ended up going to medical school. He's just become a psychiatrist. So, um, yeah. So this, so we, we did get a doctor out of it. Yeah. We got at least and, one. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. A doctor and a writer. He can be your shrink. Well, it will be like the James brothers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. That's what I told him. I'll be like, hey, we'll be like Henry and William James. Uh, right. It's like, what? <laughs> Who? <laughs> that is actually like an astonishing brotherly yeah. output. Yeah. You know? And our other brother will be Alice, right? Is that Alice James? Alice James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to find a way for him to fit into the equation. How old is he? Um, he's uh, born in 75, so he's... 36, 37. Something like that. Okay. He's getting his PhD in philosophy. Oh, wow. At York University in Toronto. So, yeah, they're going to be two do two out of three are doctors. I'm the non-doctor. You're the master. You I, I'm the master, <laughs> but I want to, I think I feel like I need to go back and get a doc, maybe an honorary doctorate. That Before could happen. my mom dies, <laughs> she's going to be crushed. <laughs> two out of three. Would you, have you, would you ever go back and get a PhD? No. No. Yeah. An honorary? Yeah, sure. If they called me, I would go back <laughs> for an honorary THT. Why, why would I, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, maybe just if you needed it Unless to Unless it was in something. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, something besides writing, you know, like a... I just think but, it's, I think it's like a, it's, it's, for, you know, most of the writers I know who have gotten the PhD have gotten it because they see it as an, it gives them an advantage in the academic arena for teaching jobs. Yeah. Or, or... Or they just it, love or, being in school. Yeah. You, you can know? stick around and do a four-year creative writing program instead of two or something. Yeah. But I don't know. I think it's good to get out because there's the, you know, you get out of the program and you're in, you're just in the world. You know, there's the terror of that. Mm. And then you got to get that first book out of the way. <laughs> 
Yeah. And there's the terror of that. <laughs> yeah, the terror of that. You know, and and um, it's interesting. In grad school, there were there were a lot of. Uh, I didn't feel like the fiction writers were that competitive. Well, let's let's actually stop oh, yeah. for a second. You were at UCLA. You graduated. You told your parents you were not going to go to medical school. Yeah. And then you went to graduate school at Iowa. Well, there's a gap there too. Okay. That's, <laughs> right. That's Which cool. is like I graduated from college after a short five and a half years, and um, and then I was like, well, I'm going to go on. A, I've saved up money. I'm going to go on my post collegiate continental tour. Yeah. You know, like John Milton style, and. Um, and I'm going to write a novel while I'm <laughs> without ever having taken creative writing. That was the other thing. I thought I was better than right. creative writing class yeah. uh, because I thought, oh, I, you know, basically it's, a, it's a, that, that young writer error where you think you can write as well as you can read. Right. Or you could write as well as the stuff you're reading. Right. Like right. I read Pinch and therefore I can write like Pinch. Yeah. Um, it's like a one for one in, yeah. in, in, you know, input output. Right. Right. It's, but it's like literature in garbage out. Right. Ligo. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I went and, and traveled for six months, um, in Europe and in Turkey. And then I was trying to write a book there, which is just a disaster. And I came back and realized, oh, I need to, you know, take some classes. And all of a sudden I was like, oh shit. Cause like, you know, I'm out of college and, um, I got a job working for a fine art appraiser who uh, who I worked for for many years, and you know took extension UCLA extension classes and stuff. Uh, I wrote a letter to TC Boyle, fan letter saying, you know what is what does a young writer do, kind of thing. Um, young writer is going to keep writing whether he gets published or not. And he said uh, he he offered to uh, look at a manuscript so that I I could join his class at USC, which I did. And I sort of learned, I learned more or less there about MFA programs. And then I applied to like 10 MFA programs. I got rejected from, <laughs> I'm not going to name them, the, the folliest fallbacks you could imagine. Right. Like the flakiest, lamest fallback schools you could imagine just said no. Um, luckily, I got into uh, uh, Iowa and so I was pretty stoked about that yeah. because I was like, I want to go somewhere where I'm not going to be uh, distracted uh, and I can get some writing done. And then in the, actually in the interim, before I went to Iowa, my dad offered to uh, pay for this course. I took a correspondence course through this thing called the Humber School for Writers. And I was actually teamed up with Peter Carey, who, you know, I'm like, what luck to get teamed up with Peter Carey. Right. Like, no idea who he was. And he's like, you might want to familiarize yourself with my work. And I'm just like, holy shit. That's fucking amazing. <laughs> and it was just one of these programs where you're supposed to like spend eight months working with a writer and finish a book manuscript. And it, so we spent eight months working on like the same 20 pages. You know, it's right. like, you're not going to finish a book, kid. We're going to revise a short story to death. Right. Um, very, very informative, very quick sort of education. And at the time, I mean, I was living in like a, $500 a month apartment in North Redondo, which is kind of dodgy, but yeah. close to good surf. And I was working at that time in a sort of like a, like a cram school for Chinese kids. Um, and in Palos Verdes. Yeah. You know, just, just yes. scraping by doing shitty jobs and, uh, writing a lot, just sitting in my little, these, these apartment, this apartment building had garage storage units on the lower level. Like everybody had a garage, but they all used it for storage. And the one in the back that I had was the one that had an actual room 
downstairs. And it was just like literally a door, a window, and nothing else. And so I ran a phone cord out my upstairs window down downstairs to connect to the internet. I installed an alarm. I put my crappy old PC in there and like lined it with bookshelves. And it was just like, this is my writing little, my writing space. So, And that's how it got started. And then you get to Iowa. Then I get to Iowa. And how was that? It was great. Yeah. I, I actually called my mom after I'd gotten there before classes had started. I'd met a few people, um, randomly. And, uh, I called my mom and I was like almost in tears and I was like, I, these are my people. Yeah. I really, I mean, I (laughs) I seriously, cause I, I, in all that time that I'd spent in LA, not taking creative writing, whatever, I just didn't know very many writers. Well, that's the thing about it. Like that's one of the main uh, benefits I think of an MFA program. And I've had conversations about this with multiple people on this program. And like, uh, you know, that run the gamut. People think they're terrible. People think they're great everywhere in between. But one of the great things about going into any creative writing workshop, whether it's university affiliated or it's something that's privately conducted in whatever town you live in, is to just be sitting in a room with other people who do this, yeah, you know, repetitively and compulsively or whatever you want to, just to kind of be sitting there going, oh, okay, so I'm not the only crazy person because otherwise you're on your little island and especially in your apprentice years right. where you have no real connectivity to publishing or no real connectivity to community, it's a great relief. And no necessarily, you know, for me, no sense of what it, it meant to unpack a text, you know, like the stuff that I wrote <clears throat> when I was first traveling around Europe, it's readable, um, but it doesn't really adhere to any conventions. And part of the reason was because I didn't think I fucking needed conventions, you right, know, but right. um, but you do. And uh, you can get a sense on how, how do other people respond to your work. And then I think what's even more important within the workshop context is how you respond to other people's work. Um, because that's, you're, you're, you're taking stuff in and you're forced to, to criticize about it, critic, think critically about it. Um, I think that's where you're going to learn, uh, how to flex those muscles the most, even more than getting criticism of your own work, because that's sort of, I, I don't find it that, that useful. Well, I just think that, I think that the, just the, the, the reality of being in co- like immediate communication with a reader, yeah. um, especially somebody in, in a critical context, yeah. you know, that made me automatically raise my game and it just brought new clarity to my work. It was like, yeah. Oh, this isn't just for me, or this isn't just some sort of like hypothetical situation. Like someone's going to read this in the next three days and come back in here and talk, you know, right. I felt and like it I was, has to stand on its own. Yeah. And it has yeah. to, it has to speak to them. Like it just puts you, I don't know. Like it, it's so much of what you learn can in hindsight, I think sometimes feel, uh, elemental and just like, Oh, duh. Yeah. But you still have to learn it. <laughs> you do, and you have to learn it exper- experientially. Right. And I'm not saying, by the way, about other people cr- criticizing uh, my work, that that wasn't useful, but it's only sort of useful in in a narrow context, like fix these sentences, fix this scene, whatever. But I, the, the sort of more experiment, experiential and global stuff, I think, comes from, um, for me, came from more from reading other people's work. And then the stuff that happens outside the classroom, just just... I mean, straight up on the level of sitting around and bullshitting, it's it's just like the kid. You just picture a kid going to sports camp, you know, or you know, sports kid going to theater camp, and he's like, nobody wants to talk about sports. You know, it's the same thing. You get if you're if you're among other writers, you're going to find other people who are interested in talking about the stuff that you're you're interested in, and 
I, anytime I see like workshop stuff depicted on um, TV or in films, it's always sort of laughably pretentious. Uh, and maybe that's what it sounds like from the outside, but from the inside, what I appreciated the most sort of like sitting at, there's a bar called the Fox head that a lot of people went to. Um, you just, you could go any night of the week. It was like, cheers. You know, you like knew everybody there. You sit down, you're just having conversations about stuff that you're interested in with like zero, maybe a little bit, but feels like zero pretension. You know, people, you want to talk about Proust, you can talk about Proust. And you can also say, I haven't fucking read Proust, it's too long, you know, or whatever you want. Um, and I think there's this sense from the outside that these are very clicky, enclosed communities. But um, but in fact, they're places where where a certain kind of person can really open up and relax. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a specialized community and it's people who are passionate about this. And I'm sure if you're sitting in a room full of medical students... Um, you know, and they're, and they're all studying to be psychiatrists. They're going to sit right. around talking about, you know, therapy models or whatever. I know. I don't even know yeah. if I'm, that's the right terminology, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, you just get people in a room who share the same interest and they're bound to be able to, you know, I think feel at ease because Moda- I think modalities they would talk modalities. Yeah. <laughs> right? I admit- but you know, I don't know. I just think that, uh, especially when it comes to books and literary culture, there is sort of kind of a, uh. Uh, you know, a level of like effete, pretentious, yeah. you know, that's sort of like classically associated with it. It's like, it's like a stereotype right? and it's rooted in some truth. But I think that there is also such a thing as just genuine enthusiasm for the thing. Yeah. And it's a good thing. Like this is something I've kind of gone round and round about. Cause like I can sometimes feel, and tell me if you agree, frustrated with literary culture, the business of publishing, like it's, a, it can be really maddening mm. and sometimes uh, attitudes can present themselves and you can, it can be off putting all those things happen, I think in any profession and, um, you know, but, but ultimately when you go back and I think for me, what happens is when I read a book that really, really gets to me, that's always uh, a reorientation or a regrounding in why I'm doing this in the first place. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. all of a sudden you're just like, okay, yeah. This well, is this is it. This is really important. This brings us to the internet, right? I mean, th- we're which we're talking on, I guess, or will be listened on to. On, I, I feel old because I can say ah, back then we didn't have the internet, and, <laughs> and you know we had Michael Silverblatt on the radio. You know that that was where I we got still my, do. Yeah, well, I know we still do, and I, I still listen, but I actually listen to him via podcast now, so that's technically the internet, right? Um, Anyhow, but, I, but that was that was it. That was my main line, you know, tuning in at that time in my car or wherever I was to hear real writers talk. And now, I mean, you can go, you can if you want to read an interview with anybody, it's there on the internet. Um, there's a, so much going on on Twitter. Uh, I ch- I use Twitter all the time as a sort of touchstone to see, hey, what's going on in literary culture? Because that's mainly what the people I, I follow along with um, professional surfers, which just always really chops up, <laughs> chops up the thread quite nicely. But, um, it's good for a little levity. And, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it just feels like that those conversations are just, um, they're so present and they can make you feel like you need to be involved and you need to be a part of them. Um, and you don't, you can, you can duck out and nobody's going to care. Um, I was talking to my wife about this. She was 
we were discussing reading Deadline Hollywood, whether that's good or bad for a, a television writer to do, because you can you know drive yourself crazy reading Deadline Hollywood. The comment boards. Yeah, it, <laughs> not even the comment boards, but just like you know what's who's doing what and what the deals are and what's going on. Right. Um, and you know it doesn't really matter how involved you are with all that stuff as long as you know, when it comes down to it, you've got something to bring to the table, you know, you're still making work. Um, and so if you can make work while also dipping your toe into all of those comment boards and things like that, then that's awesome. But I think it's also important to, to go back to, um, I don't know, to center yourself or something. Yeah, no, I mean, like, it's weird. I've, I've, it's like over the past year and a half, like since I've been, you know, really working uh, on this book, I feel like I've come out of like a five-year period that I feel sort of silly about, where I've spent so many, so much time experimenting in all these different phases. I'm still mm. doing. It. I'm podcasting. I've got a website. I'm, you know, right. and like I've just spread myself at times. I think too thin, or I've found myself too wrapped up in sort of the static, which I guess it can right. be easy to get wrapped up in, and ultimately what it comes down to is just the books and making the books and that's it. And that has to be central. That has to be first. And if you can do this other stuff, that doesn't necessarily mean this other stuff is inherently evil or anything, Well, but it can't, it can't take over, you know, it can't take over. Yeah. And I, I feel like I see some, I see it taking some people over sometimes. Um, you know, the advantage to it is if you enjoy it, then it's a good way to be part of a community. And then when your book comes out, People know your name and they, they're like, oh, I want to read Brad's book, right? Or whatever. Um, my feeling with just because I've also been feeling this, you know, I have, having a book coming out, there's all like how involved, how, do I have to step up my blog post? Do I have to do this? And, it, and it's just to me, it's like. Twitter quotas. Yeah, Twitter quotas. <laughs> never even heard that phrase. No, I'm, I'm going to dream that phrase tonight <laughs> in your voice. Oh, man. <laughs> I just. For me, it's about fun. I enjoy Twitter, so I just have. It is fun the on superior it. social network, I think. Yeah, it's best. I can, and it's a great information aggregate. Like the way that you were describing your use of it, yeah, as a way of keeping up with a field of interest uh, or tracking news of whatever kind. Yeah, like it's there's no better way. Well, the, and the ironic thing about Twitter is that people who don't know how to use Twitter, um, either on the like marketing SEO weirdo spam people who like try to teach you how to be a business person to use Twitter, which I don't understand. Um, or on the end of, uh, Jonathan Franzen, um, (laughs) they don't understand that Twitter seems like it's the ultimate symptom of the information age, the ultimate ADD, just scroll past shit on a timeline that you, you know, it breaks when you walk away from it. You don't even know, you know, you just, you aren't catching everything on it. You're, you're flipping through channels faster than than can be imagined, and yet, um, what it does is because of the links, because of the community, because of uh, of the way it aggregates, is it, it Twitter has led me to more deep reading online than anything else. Right. It has led me to more, you know, really great, carefully considered essays on sites from like your site to the Rumpus or the Millions or uh, New York Review of Books or whoever, Paris Review, Public Space, whatever. Who's, the, who's that brain picker girl? I know you're a fan of her. 
right? Am I don't I, want to talk about brain pain. <laughs> I'm constantly like, it's like these most, like the, the links that, that she posts are constantly grabbing my attention. I got, I got this. So, okay. So I said, Hey, yeah, Twitter isn't Twitter without the brain picker or something. <laughs> Cause I was like, she keeps posting this interesting stuff. And then I got this, like these angry tweets back from a couple of people who said, well, they obviously didn't know about this kerfuffle. Was there a kerfuffle? There was a kerfuffle. <laughs> and she was, she acted non. What's her name? Maria Admir- po- Popova? Or- I think so. Yeah. yeah. She acted non-admirably in some way. Oh, and I, and then I remember reading that and going, yeah, okay. They're, these guys are right. Uh, that wasn't cool. And then now I've actually forgotten what the whole thing was. Yeah, dude, that's the, so, inter- that's the internet that, in a nutshell. That, since, you know, yeah. at, at it's like, at it's, uh, toxic best you know where you all of a sudden find yourself wrapped up in some scandal that like you know and i find that happens too like uh you know looking at my computer screen you can suddenly find everybody gravitating to one particular news story or one particular angry thing and it's like you know all of a sudden you're in the middle of it and you're like wait a minute am i actually even angry about this (laughs) right it feels manufactured or it feels like you're doing it because you know you want to um you know, ascend to some level of participation so that you can be a part of the conversation or whatever. But, uh, I don't know. I, I think that it can be a useful tool and I think that it's a good way to just keep track of the internet because it's right. so massive, especially if, you know, it's literature. And your, keep track of your internet in a way that, right. that, um, sort of you get to be your own curator through what interests the people you follow. It's kind of an interesting thing. Well, and then what about discipline? What about like drawing a dividing line between, you know, the important work of writing fiction and, yes. <laughs> and then, you the clo- know, the stuff that gets closer to the mic. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> how do you, how do you do that? How do you, um, uh, you know, do you have a computer that's not hooked up to the internet or have you just gotten good at the discipline and making sure that, you know, you get your work done first thing or how, how does it work for you? Um, for me, it's about momentum. Um, and I, yeah, it's, it's hard. That's hard for me to answer. Cause I can't fully remember, um, what it was like to write this book, except that, yeah, I would, I would show up every day at the office, you know, and, and start at nine, give myself a half hour to just sort of warm up in some way and then try to work for three hours and then eat some food and then try to squeeze out some some more work or something like that. And where are you working at? You're out of the house. This is, this is, this was out of the house. Yeah. Uh, a place called the office. Okay. Yeah. 26th yeah, yeah. street. Yeah. Is that where um, Katie Arnoldi works? Yes, that uh, is where we've Katie. talked about and, this on, uh, on the show. She, and Gigi, Gigi Lavangie Grazer uh-huh. also works there. Um, yeah, it's a fun environment. I mean, it doesn't look like a fun environment. It looks like a bunch of writers not talking to each other, <laughs> noise canceling headphones on, but it works. Uh, it's, and it's near enough to my house that I can, uh, walk if I'm feeling, um, motivated. So yeah, for me, it's all about being there already when the muse might arrive. Right. Yeah. Not waiting. Yeah. So, so by momentum, I think, um, I mean, just trying to get a good number of work days in a row. Uh, the weekends always mess me up. Um, that's, you know, one aspect of being a parent, um, so Monday sometimes is a little harder to get started, but, uh, yeah, when you start to get on a roll, then it becomes, you know, uh, painful to not do it. You know what I'm saying? Especially when you know where things are going and you feel like you have, uh, I think you described it as like a lobe of your brain. Yeah. Once the lobe is developed, you know what I'm saying? And you yeah. have kind of like a, 
uh, conversational um, understanding of your story's world or whatever, and then you get going. It's or even like an ener- an energy hum thing, yeah. And it, and and you feel like it's probably going to die if you neglect it for another day, right? Um, that and if I if I go three days without writing something, um, without offloading something, I start to go really crazy. It's so, yeah, you start to get grumpy. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's behind the um, the re- you know like why I write. Like I have happened to have channeled it into novel writing or whatever, but there is a sort of buildup of creative energy that has nothing to do with my balls. Um, you know, <laughs> it's just sort of chi, but um, yeah, it's like a three day buildup, you know, and it's like, boom, if I don't, if I don't write something, I really, um, yeah, I don't know if I get, I get a little bit grumpy. I get a little weird, get depressed. I start to feel like there's a haze layer in getting in between myself and the rest of, of the world. Um, start well, to feel locked in a bit. Well, no, it's, it's, I mean, I think it's under discussed how therapeutic, um, writing can be Yeah, like writing a book. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the medicinal value of it, like when you look at, you know, we were talking about the underpinnings of your work earlier, you know, it's, and, and the same could be said for my work, or I'm sure anybody listening who's working on a book or has written a book, um, whatever you happen to be working through in your fiction, uh, I, w- I would imagine that the overwhelming majority of the time you're better off having written about it, whatever the quality of the yeah. writing, do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's got but, such a medicinal value. Yeah. But if you told, if you said to me, do you think writing has a therapeutic benefit? I, I would probably just say no, you know, like my, my natural instinctive response is to say no to that. Um, well, because there are examples of writers who write great stuff and still remain <laughs> unwell or whatever. Well, know? yeah, there's that for sure. Um, yeah, to me, it's more of sort of just a way of life. Like, and but then on the other hand, you know, I did. I went to therapy for uh, I don't know, maybe a year or so, like right around when my dad died. And when it came to an end, I was sort of like, well, I sort of run out of things to talk about, like I, that I felt motivated to talk about. And I said, I was sort of like, I'd rather just use this time and energy to write fiction. So I think that they're, they're, they're coming from, and this therapist was a, was a Jungian, and he, he was sort of like, sort of on the side of thinking that therapy would help bring out creative things. And, and I just felt like it was just stealing um, from my creative energy. That I, like I, I, and so, I mean, literally what you're saying is what I experienced, that, that somehow... It is literally therapeutic. Like it replaces therapy to be writing. Yeah. It's a Uh, confrontation of one's own thoughts and you can't, I mean, especially if you spend extended periods of time looking at them and revising them and pouring over them, you can't hide from them. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a, I think that's the, I think they're similar. Right. Well, that's, that's why, that's why I I feel like I should say no. Right. You know, it's, it's it's a, uh, uh, an overreaction. No, this isn't therapy. <laughs> right, right. No, right. This is disinterested art. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. I did you know, just dispassionately, coolly looking at right. the depths right. of my own being. And yeah, yeah. it's not a problem. Um, the limpid pools. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, I guess professional life, you know, you got through Iowa and then you published the interloper when, like how much of a lag was there between getting out of graduate school and getting that book done? I uh, so yeah, I got out of Iowa. I went to Wisconsin for a year. I had a fellowship there where I wrote the Saudi uh, oil worker nineteen fifties nineteen eighties novel that's in the drawer, 
and then um, moved to Santa Monica, was still working on that, finishing it. And, well, let's see, The Interloper came out in 2007, and it took about two years to write. So I'm thinking I started it in 2004. Yeah. So. And did the, I mean, the sales process, getting an age and all that kind of stuff, did that, was terrible? Terrible. Painful. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal, um, you know, because we can talk about the details, like rejections, Mm. false summits, you know, mm-hmm. all the things that writers go through on their way to publication. Yeah. But I think the more interesting question is how did you deal with them? Like, you know what I'm saying? Did you ever hit walls where you were like, uh, like bedridden, depressed, or did you always find yourself, yeah. uh, picking yourself up? <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Full stop. Who, yeah. Who, <laughs> right. Who wouldn't be? Yeah. I mean, it sucks. Cause you have to spend, first of all, you spend all this time. I mean, with the first novel, you know, I spent three years writing that. Saudi Arabia novel sent it out to a bunch of agents. And at some point I decided, okay, this isn't going to happen. Um, you know, it was the first real novel I'd written. So I was able to, to say, okay, maybe I'll set it aside. And I had an, I had an idea for something new, which was the interloper. And, and also that first novel had sort of everything I'd learned in it. You know, I, I felt like I was a, really applying a lot of stuff I'd learned in grad school and, as soon as I started the interloper, I was like, "This has to be more like a tightrope walk." <clears throat> I have to sort of feel like I'm not deploying things I've learned. I have to feel like I'm trying to forget. Um, and with the interloper, I uh, sort of use Nabokov as a crutch, something to push against, um, not to imitate him actually, but just sort of to, as a touchstone. It's you know, I think that's very common. I know it's the case with me, where you have a book or two or an author. Yeah, you know that you're using with every new book of your own mm-hmm. it sort of serves as like, like that, that was a great way of putting it, something to push against a crutch and yeah, a uh, touchstone. Yeah. Right. Measuring stick, you <laughs> whatever, measure, whatever you not like. Not a measuring yeah. stick. This is, I had this experience. I was walking home one day from, uh, uh, days writing on, on Panorama city feeling like shit. And I was just like, it popped into my head. You have to, you have to compare yourself. You can't compare yourself to the hero. You can't look at Alice Monroe or whoever and say, wow, what I did today sucks so much worse than what Alice Monroe did yeah. in that story that was published. You've got to compare yourself to the zero, to the nothing that was there before you wrote that day. So, you know, you have to give yourself a little bit of that pat on the back. So, yeah, I try not to do the measuring stick thing. Because, that's smart. Because that's just the worst. You yeah, know? no, no. I just, I'm going through this. I'm going to talk to uh, DT Max on this show. And so oh, by the time man, this episode. I can't wait to read that book. Yeah, I just finished it. Oh. Um, but by the time I, you know, this episode airs, that one might have already, I don't know what the order is going to be. Yeah. But Wallace in particular yeah. has that effect on me where every time I read something by him or about him, I find myself just like simultaneously like inspired and blown, you know, awestruck. And then also just like depressed, crushed, <laughs> crushed. It's like, yeah. holy shit. Like I'm playing T-ball yep. and he, yep. you know what I'm saying? And it's and the annoying it's feeling a- of wishing to be smarter than you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, I mean, luckily novel writing doesn't come down to smarts and he knew that and struggled with that. And well, he came sounds to that. Like that, that. Yeah. That's what that, I read a really nice review by S. Kirk Walsh about, I think I don't remember where it was, but about uh, this, this DT Max book. And um, yeah, it sounds like he's, he, he understood that his brains were a part of what got things on the page, but it wasn't the, the reason to put things on the page. Um, but yeah, it, I, so 
Pub- oh, the publishing process. Yeah, and just like the, and the, the difficulties and the depression. Yeah, yeah, so I sent it out to a bunch of places. I got, you know, a bunch of uh, nice letters from agents and stuff. And that's the other thing. You don't know. We had a little bit of the internet, but not that much again. Actually, even before grad school, I, I used to go on the Poets and Writers message boards. I went to the Choosing an MFA program thing on the Speakeasy, and I would t- talk to people about which MFA program they were choosing. Cheryl Strayed was on there back in the day. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. No and Chris Offit would pop in once in a while randomly. Yeah. Um, but I met one of my, this guy, John Woodward, one of my old friends from Iowa. I met him on that message board and we agreed because we both ended up going to Iowa. We agreed to meet at George's bar and have, you know, have a drink the first night we were in town. Anyway, that's a long, long way around. But I, uh, so yeah, I got a lot of, um, rejections and then I wrote another, that other novel, the interloper and yeah, you know, looking for an agent. It's really hard because they've got, they've already, most agents have already got a pile of clients. They don't need another client. Most of them. Um, and so they have to fall in love with your work. And as you know, that's, if you go into a writing workshop, you'll find plenty of people who are willing to say things about your work and whatever. And you'll find maybe one out of 12 people who are like, Oh my God, we, we connect. We're on right. the same page, right. you know? And one um, out of 12 is, I mean, one out of 12 is lucky even. Right. I'm just saying, picking a random number. So then right. imagine submitting to agents, getting them the full manuscript. If you get to that stage and then you've got one out of 12, you know, you're still, you're still dealing with a lot of, a lot of rejection, probably kind rejection. Cause it's not really a jerky business. No, for it's the not. Most part, most, most people are, you know, wish you well. Anyhow, so yeah, I eventually got an agent, um, and then she really had trouble selling the interloper. I mean, it got rejected like thirty something places because it's kind of a dark book um, and a comic book at the same time. Uh, I didn't really you mean a funny book, not a comic. Yeah, I'm sorry, book. yeah, a funny book. I didn't really realize that that combination would would creep people out the way that it did, um, and. A lot of people find, you know, ended up finding it really pleasurable, but it wasn't something that a lot of publishers were wanting to take a risk on. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that was. But you got through the hoop, and you had an agent who believed in you, who was willing to see it through. Yes. That many, which is critical, because yeah. so many agents wouldn't. It was. It was essential. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what, like when, and I think you alluded to this when uh, you were describing the process and, and the one out of twelve thing. You know, people ask me about finding an agent. What I always say to them is, uh, you know, you can get the high-powered agent or whatever yeah. who's got, like, the, the list of, like, all-star clients. But if that agent, you know, obviously is going to have higher priorities than you, you know, that's one thing to consider. But the other thing really ultimately is that it, it, it's about the enthusiasm. Yeah. Whichever agent is most, like, genuinely enthusiastic, even if that agent doesn't necessarily have some sort of grand track record, that's probably the person you should go with because if, when you hit resistance in the marketplace, which you almost certainly will with a debut, yeah. you need somebody there who's a believer. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just going to be like, well, next time, go, go write another book. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, there was, I mean, there was yeah, it's plenty of rejection and issues and whatever. And then when the book came out, it got – the first review came from Kirkus and it was searingly bad. Um, I called it a lame debut novel. And it, I was just like, what the fuck have I done? <laughs> right. Oh, no. Right. And then every other review was went from like glowingly positive to just plain like two thumbs up. It was 
really, really, you know, well received after the initial <laughs> bitch slap from Kirkus. Right. Um, they do that a lot. I feel like Kirkus. They do, They're and prickly. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, anyhow, uh, everything was smooth sailing until I sent that same agent um, the first draft of a Panorama City, and uh, she looked at it and got back to me, you know, a month later or whatever, and she said. Um, I don't really understand what you're trying to do here. (laughs) So, you know, I really respect her candor and her honesty because she was like, I, I can't try to sell a book that I personally don't understand. I think it's probably really good, but it's not my thing. And she does a lot of nonfiction. Um, She really connected with the interloper, but mainly she does nonfiction. So I understand that it was sort of out, for whatever reason, outside of her wheelhouse. And she actually helped me with the process of finding a different agent. Right. Which was, um, again, it was hard because I felt like, okay, you know, you you feel like you've got a book out. It's well-received. You can, you know, build on that and so on and so forth. And instead, sort of what was happening was, okay, I just spent four years writing another book that my agent doesn't get. Um, Luckily, Katie Arnoldi, actually, um, read the manuscript as well. She was in the office. She's watching me go through this process, and she's like, this is fantastic. And I have another friend, Eric Bennett, who was w- sort of one of my first readers, and another friend, Jack Livings, both from grad school, who were like, this is, you know, full steam ahead. You're all right. So I really did lean on my friends for this this period. Um, ended up, it's so funny. You just, oh, I ended up getting another agent. Um I'll, I'll spare you like all the despair and the, you know, the three gin and tonics a night and the, you know, breaking into tears when, um, that agent told me that she loved the book. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It, all, it always gets summarized as, oh yeah. And then I ended up getting an agent yeah. and then we ended up selling the book. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so it, but there, yeah, there's it, just a totally crazy rocky road yep. and, and it's just, you, you just have to roll with it. Um, and have faith. And if, when you lose faith, you have to, uh, lean on your friends and not just, hopefully you have some, well, yeah, (laughs) or enemies, whatever, as as long as they're trusted readers, right. Um, people who aren't just going to blow smoke up your butt. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, then the book went out, you know, and we sold it to, uh, Grove Atlantic and, uh, my editor then moved to Houghton Mifflin and brought it with her. Um, she loved the book so much and believed in it so much that she said it's, it was basically part of uh, her package, that if she was going to move, um, she was going to bring the book with her. She got the okay from the Grove Atlantic people and from the Houghton Mifflin people, and, and that's how it became an HMH book. Um, but so there were it, it was a lot of um, difficult adjusting, difficult periods, times of despair and doubt and in the end though i don't think it could have turned out better because as you said i ended up with a, an agent who was very passionate about the book and an editor who was even more passionate about the book so you know you put those things together and then boom that's a great way to birth it into the world yeah you have to have champions but, yeah know. but finding those people it's i don't drink anymore <laughs> i used to drink right. i like drinking right. i want to have a drink right and um you know maybe i will maybe i will when the book comes out but right. i stopped drinking for about a year and a half because of this process um because i you know 
it's a really great stress reliever and a poor uh, tool for emotional management. Right. Long term emotional management. Right. Yeah, so, right. Right. So. Well, you know, man, uh, I didn't know that, but congratulations on making it through the gauntlet. Yeah. And getting this book out there, it's uh, you know, it's gotten early starred reviews, good buzz. It was a yeah. bu- it was a buzz book at a BEA, right? That was an amazing stroke of fortune. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how that happened, but it, it it happened. It it happened, and it's one of those things that you know suddenly you're sort of front and center for a minute, and you say, "Oh, it's me. I'm, I'm an front author." And center, and it's and I think from the outside. I've looked at that stuff and thought, how do these people get into the, you know, da, da. and it's just, you know, it's just a lot of different people working hard. And then every once in a while, somebody connects to your stuff. Yeah. A little bit of luck. A little bit of luck. Well, I appreciate the time, man. And uh, I wish you all the best with this book and uh, with whatever's next. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I can't just, <laughs> I just, I wish I could go back and become a professional surfer <laughs> at would, this point. Would be a great career, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be a little stressful about trying to stay up on the top 44 all the time, but it would be pretty nice. Yeah, just to have sponsors and yeah, travel like the world. Yeah, like a surfer. Yeah. Yeah, uh. like Rasta um, or are- Dane. Who's that? I don't even know. Uh, these guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just surfer guys. Yeah, free surfers. They They just get paid to surf. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, listen, it's been good talking with you. It's been a real pleasure. Peace out. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is Antoine Wilson. Go get his novel. It's called Panorama City. It is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find him online at AntoineWilson.com. He's on the Facebook, and you can follow him on Twitter at Antoine Wilson. This show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. And, hey, if you want to donate, if you want to cough up a few bucks to help the program out, you can do that at otherpeoplepod.com by clicking on donate up there in the right sidebar. The show has a Twitter feed. Follow it at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. If you would like to delve into my unusual personal tweeting, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me, let me know what you're thinking. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free other people app available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod touch, or your Android device. Uh, thanks once again to our sponsor, the Litbreaker Ad Network. If you want to reach the literary arts and culture web, please visit litbreaker.com and start advertising today. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, please do keep an eye out for Board, my new book with Justin Benton. It's an odd experimental work of literary collage. David Shields, the author of Reality Hunger, calls it, quote, a sharp, funny, and unexpectedly moving take on contemporary America in the digital age. So, uh, you know, that's that's pretty nice. The book will be available in mid-November in both print and ebook editions, and you can get it wherever books are sold online. Please remember that William Blake lived and dressed in inconceivable filth and almost never bathed, and that Vincent Van Gogh once wrote in a letter, quote, This morning I walked to the place where the street cleaners dumped the rubbish. My God, it was beautiful. End quote. Uh, okay. Thanks for listening, you guys. That's it for now. I appreciate it. I'll be back again soon with another uh, dialogue, another monologue, some more rambling, some more stuttering, some more questioning, and so on. Uh, I hope this was enjoyable. I hope this was some quality programming. I hope you uh, gain something from it. I don't know how to end this one. I'm just sort of talking now. I'm in a flat spin. It's way too late. And uh, what do you think I should do? How do you think I should end this? Should I do it now? (laughs) 